This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, I speak with Molly O'Rourke, a pollster at Heart Research in Washington, about the state of the polling industry in America. People have been highly skeptical of public opinion research since the 2016 election. Are they right to doubt polls? Also, I'll talk about some uncomfortable realities of polling that we are living with today. And now, The Nexus. Molly O'Rourke is a partner at Heart Research, a public opinion research firm in Washington. She is also an executive in residence at American University, where I teach as well, and is the director there of the MA program in political communication. O'Rourke has built a career in understanding what the public is thinking on a variety of issues, and the surveys she has conducted have been done on behalf of NBC News, The Wall Street Journal, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Children's Defense Fund, and many others. Molly O'Rourke, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you very much for having me. I, I just want to start right off with um, there is one persistent belief that um, I know that you can enlighten us on. I still see time and again that in 2016, quote, polls were completely wrong and, quote, this election proves that polls are meaningless. And so today, as we see the Democratic race shape up and in other issues as well, I see a startling amount of skepticism with polls. Are the naysayers right? Well, uh, no, they're not. But I think the skepticism is well-founded in that um, polling should be analyzed and interpreted thoughtfully. Not all polls are the same. So there are some um, junk polls out there, uh, just like there are, uh, you know, uh, uh, low-quality resources in um, all aspects of things. But, but truthfully, the um, we can talk about it in a little more detail about what happened in 2016, but I think the effect looking forward to 2020 is that, or my hope is that um, journalists and members of the media have become more educated about what they should look for in polls to be um, uh, cognizant of kind of the quality markers of what makes a good poll and things like sample size. Um, but then also what, frankly, the limitations of polling, um, particularly in a, a very dynamic presidential election, what those limitations are and to, you know, not pretend that those limitations don't exist. Polls were never meant to be predictive of the future. They are always a snapshot in time. And so by definition, by the time polls are reported, there is already a dated aspect to them because life intervenes and things happen um, between the time that the poll is conducted and the time that it's, it's released. So there's a lot of important factors that go into making a smart consumer of polling data, but to kind of with a broad brush um, uh, dismiss polling or dismiss public opinion research as um, not not credible or, you know, having failed in 2016 and therefore not having a real value in 2020, I think that's a, that's a huge mistake. Right. And, and I think you touched upon a, a number of interesting things in what you just said, but the, 
The part that I really wanted to zero in on is the predictive nature. Is that where things went wrong in a lot of ways that it, it were there? Was there a predictive element so much in 2004, say, versus 2016? I felt like I saw a lot of these 97% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And I could be wrong, but I don't feel like in previous cycles you saw that as much. Is that where a lot of the problems came into play? Yeah. So there's a couple of things there. Um, the you know, technology that allows us to now kind of aggregate po- polls and put statistical significance or um, uh, be able to um, try and project uh, uh, outcomes, I think that that is especially problematic in an election cycle where, again, um, you know, events happen between when a poll was taken and when the event that you're trying to measure uh, uh, actually happens. So, in 2016, in t- I mean, in, in terms of your question directly around the predictive nature of polling, I think there are two issues. One is common in every election in that we are trying to, we as, as pollsters, as people who are um, measuring public opinion research, we are constantly trying to guess what turnout is going to be. And those assumptions um, make, end up having really, really critical implications. Um, We have to understand that everybody who tells us that they're going to vote isn't necessarily going to vote. Uh, A lot of things um, uh, go into kind of understanding uh, the the factors that predict whether a person is going to vote. People are very bad uh, at reporting their or self-reporting their own behavior. So asking people is not enough. Um, we often have to then look at um, other markers that show or that correlate with likelihood to vote. But on top of that, there are the campaigns are out there spending money trying to change the nature of the electorate. They're trying to get their voters to turn out and to mobilize. And there's uh, 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 other independent expenditure groups um, that are trying to do the same on a candidate's behalf. So it's not a static or known thing we can't right now know who is actually going to turn out to vote in not only the general election in 2020, but even in the Democratic primaries. So there's a predictive nature of who's actually going to participate. And that is, of course, going to change because that's what campaigns do. They try and change the nature of the uh, the composition of the electorate to favor their candidate. So um, that's one element of things. And then um, the second thing I guess I would say in terms of the predictive nature of 2016 is that you, uh, and this is really coming out of the APOR, APOR is the American Association of Public Opinion Researchers, which is the kind of industry professional association that uh, sets uh, best practices and standards and um, really looked very, very carefully uh, at 2016 and came out with a very comprehensive report. And I think one of the findings from that report that is important for us to remember is that 2016 was a very unusual year in that we had two candidates who had net, had net negative um, 
uh, impressions um, among all voters. So they were um, more likely to be seen unfavorably than favorably. That is not normally uh, the case. So we had a very kind of polarized set of candidates. Mm-hmm. We had, as we always do, a group of undecided voters. Um, in this case, in 2016, those undecided voters uh, broke disproportionately for Donald Trump right. in the kind of three, four, five days before the election. So that the predictive nature um, of a poll, if you're taking it, you know, five or six days or a week or 10 days out from an election, you're going to have somewhere between 5 and 10% of voters saying they're undecided. But they're not going to be undecided by election day. They're going to have a decision. So are they going to split 50-50 for either candidate or are they going to go 70-30 for one of the candidates? And some of that depends on what happens that weekend before the election. Um, you know, where are the rallies? How well covered are they? Or is there an issue that comes up? Everybody's always waiting for the October surprise. Mm-hmm. So those um, elements of a campaign are just kind of structural, and they are always going to interfere with the predictive accuracy of a poll. Uh, the poll was accurate a week out, but that doesn't mean that, a, uh, you know, that by election day that all of those same factors are still in play. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and that's clear that 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 happened in in 2016. Everything that you're you're mentioning, you also touched upon earlier, and I I don't think a lot of people understand this. I think people it's very much a zero sum game with polls with a lot of people. Either they're all good or they're all bad. But you talked about junk polls. I, to me, that's always the, the the fly-by-night polls that are done by a small outfit. You know, so I don't want to besmirch anywhere in the country, but you know, places that don't have a lot of money and um, maybe poll infrequently, and their methods are are suspect. I, am I accurate in in saying that? Yeah, and so I think that there's a couple of things there in that there's low quality polls. Uh, or, you know, junk polls that sort of don't adhere to best practices or common standards. But there's also, a, I think I get this question a lot where um, there's an assumption, a misplaced assumption, I would say, that uh, that pollsters somehow have a conspiracy to, you know, cook their uh, results and make <laughs> it look like one candidate is going to win. And I, I will tell you, even, you know, for pollsters who are have a track record of being dead wrong on, you know, on every election. They are, gen- they are generally not making an effort to be wrong. <laughs> they are making an effort to be right. They are just getting it wrong. Nobody <laughs> is more kind of embarrassed or, and it couldn't be worse for your business as a publisher to have a, you know, a poll that's just demonstrably wrong post election. So it's not, um, kind of in, what a, a lot of people assume that there are, you know, malicious efforts or intent going on. I think what you touched on is really much more the problem, which is uh, around methodology and people's eyes glaze over when you start talking about methodology, but it's really not, it, it can be complicated, but the basics are really not that complicated and they're really tied to resources. So good, good high quality polls are expensive. And um, uh, I think the proliferation of, you know, low quality or junk polling is the idea that you can somehow do this on the cheap, um, that you can 
cut corners, uh, that you can just wait your data at the end and sort of instead of, you know, setting um, very careful, uh, meticulous quotas. And then the other issue is that it's a lot easier um, to do uh, a national poll um, because there's usually more money funding national polls than there is in a state-specific poll like Wisconsin or Michigan. Um, and it's a, it, it is, there's a much greater likelihood that a state-specific poll that's being conducted by a very well-intended, you know, organization, media outlet, maybe an association with a university or a policy center in that state, they probably only do polling every four or, or significant amount of polling every four years, right before the, um, uh, the you know, presidential election. And therefore, uh, a lot of, um, there's just a higher likelihood that things are going to go wrong in this case in 2016. It was really, I think, in those states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where there was a, a lack of or an underrepresentation of certain groups in the electorate. And again, that's about the predictive nature of it. Those groups uh, were kind of thought to, or they were modeled to, well, if they show up in the same proportion that they've showed up in past elections, this is how it's going to look. And in fact, in 2016, they showed up in higher proportions than they had in the past. And those state polls really didn't have a lot of um, track record or history in order to understand that dynamic and account for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so there's just a greater likelihood that some of the state polls are going to be off because they're on a tighter budget and they're done by organizations that don't have the luxury of kind of being in the field, doing polling day in and day out the way uh, a, a lot of uh, professionals who are doing national polls have the ability to do. I mean, what you're saying to me and the way I'm hearing this is, is a little scary in a sense, because I have a gut feeling as I'm listening to you and, you know, and based on just living through life over the last two and a half years, doesn't sound like this is going to be better in 2020. Am I wrong on that? Have reforms been made or are we going to go down the same path that we did last time? Well, I, I, I think that there's a much level, a much higher level of awareness that state polling has because generally the sample size is smaller. You're not going to do as many interviews in one particular battleground state as you would to do a national poll. And so that affects your margin of error. So I think there's a higher kind of cognizance or awareness among reporters, and hopefully it will trickle down as they do their um, coverage carefully. It will trickle down to voters that state polls have a higher margin of error. And so a candidate having a two or three point lead in a battleground state is often statistically insignificant when you consider the margin of error. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I, I, I think that the polls, two things need to happen is that the, the, some of the, the polling methodology needs to get better. Um, and, and that costs money to do. It's not just a matter of kind of changing your ways or doing things differently. Doing things differently involves, uh, spending more money to collect your data in a, in a, um, sounder way. But I also think that the onus is on how those, the results of those, uh, polls are covered that the headline should not be, you know, uh, one candidate is 
leading um, or, you know, in the lead or poised to win the state because he or she has a two point lead over uh, over the competitor when, you know, you're in a statewide poll with maybe four or five hundred voters and the margin of error is or the lead that one candidate has as well within the margin of error. So I think a lot of it is also, you know, us uh, as professionals who are in the field really trying to explain the new the nuance and not trying to put a quick declarative headline on data that is it, it is a science but it is not it, it there is kind of an inexact element to it because of the margin of error and because we're trying to predict a future event so i think it's really important that when we cover polls that we are always educating and transparent about what the limitations are does this mean though we're going to not have those the the Nate Silvers and the Professor Wangs of the world saying you know ninety one percent seventy eight percent chance of Donald Trump winning or losing are, are those going to go away? I don't know that they'll go away. I think everybody was uh, fairly humbled in twenty sixteen by you know how um, a lot of those predictions and they were you know predictions and they were. 60% chance or 70% chance. And so what we hear is, oh, 60 or 70% chance, well, then that's going to happen. Well, there's still a, you know, a 30 or 40% chance that it's not going to. So I don't know that those predictive um, kinds of, you know, aggregation reporting, I don't think that those are going to go away necessarily. They're fun. Um, they can be fun when they're used appropriately, I think the um, calibration that will be made is that they will be a lot more careful and a lot more nuanced um, uh, and, um, you know, try and, and be more transparent about how certain uh, they are. It's a tool and it's an element. It's not a, you know, it's not a fait accompli. It's not, it, it, it's not something that's definitive or uh, uh, an iron, uh, an iron class rule, uh, ironclad rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and obviously polling is always evolving. The sciences is in flux, and research and development is constantly happening. We hear a lot about how polling is getting away from landlines since fewer and okay. fewer people have those at home and more towards cell phones or even web only. Can, right. you, can you do a reliable poll with the internet only? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and that is, uh, I think, the biggest crossroads of um, public opinion research right now is the methodology that we use to collect data. When I started in, um, or when I was in graduate school, I actually participated in one of the last projects um, where we went door to door and uh, actually sat with our respondents and talked to them in person. And um, it was in the city of Detroit, and so it was a limited geographic area. But you know, the idea that you would ever go door to door and expect people to answer your questions is pretty laughable right now. <laughs> and I think that. In five years, the idea of doing a, a and maybe less, the idea of doing a, a survey only by telephone um, as the only way of collecting data, I think, is going to be equally laughable. Um, we 
have absolutely plummeting response rates on landlines. People don't answer their um, phones. People don't have landlines. Um, even cell phone response rates are declining rapidly in a kind of alarming way for those of us who are in the profession with the advent of kind of caller ID and people acknowledging, I, I don't answer a call from a number I don't recognize. And so our challenge is we want to interact with voters and with people. I mean, sometimes it's non-voters in terms of how do we engage them and bring them into the process, but we want to engage with Americans and we've got to figure out the most convenient, reliable, relevant way to do that. It used to be in person, then it was by phone. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the online component um, of interacting and collecting data is going to play a bigger and bigger role, but we haven't caught up with um, some of those uh, resources and safeguards in that, you know, an online survey is still more available to, uh, or, or there's less kind of, there can be less quality control. You don't, you can't necessarily stop a respondent from completing a survey twice, even if you have a unique link to that survey. You don't know nearly, you don't know as much background about the person when they're online. Mm -hmm. When we call them on the phone, they're connected with their, um, we have uh, voter lists. And so we have some kind of link or connection to their voting history. We know they're registered to vote. We know their physical address. We have some kind of record of how many of the past elections they've actually voted in. So we know something that kind of credentials or qualifies that respondent to be in our survey. Um, we are still kind of building a lot of those resources in being able to capture people meaningfully online. But that's really the challenge that we need to meet because um, uh, people are <laughs> telling us very clearly with their non-response by phone that that is not the way that they want to participate in the democratic conversation. So we are going to have to be thinking of better ways to engage people online and, you know, and even, uh, you know, by text or online on their phones, which is something that, you know, a lot of us as researchers dread because we want to have a more meaningful interaction than just, you know, press one if this or press two if that. But, um, that that is really kind of I think the the biggest challenge the industry faces right now is being able to to um, meet respondents where they are and where they're willing to engage with us. Do you believe that survey research is going to get past this? I don't want to use the word turmoil, but maybe period of confusion and become the trusted source it was for decades past. Well, I think it will always play a very important role. It's not just around politics and voting. Sure. Although that's my, you know, interest and my uh, passion is to kind of understand how public opinion research relates to the political process and gets people either voting or, you know, engaged in politics. But even, you know, at a consumer level or, a, you know, marketing um, uh, level, Re gathering research and gathering opinions and gathering reactions and attitudes is always going to be critical for any kind of marketing plan, whether it's in politics or in advertising. 
So I, I don't think it's ever going to go away, but I think what we have now is a, you know, much more diverse country. And I mean diverse in every way, including the ways in which people want to voice their opinions and participate. So now we have um, complementary, I would say, uh, tools in addition to more um, traditional polling where we do social media listening, for example, and take what people are already posting online, whether it's through Facebook or Instagram, and say, well, people are already putting out a lot of information about their views on things, whether it's on products or services or politics. How can we harness what people have already said and posted uh, publicly and be able to say something meaningful? Um, you know, so the idea of social media analytics or um, uh, social media listening, I think those um, kinds of tools will increasingly play an important role. Obviously, it depends on your target audience. If you're doing that kind of with younger voters or millennials, that seems like a very ripe and appropriate way to be engaging them and getting their feedback. If you were doing something, you know, around Medicare or around seniors, it would probably be less appropriate. But that's what I mean in terms of the diversity of we've got to have a lot of tools in our toolkit and be able to apply them to target audiences in the way that those audiences are tell us, telling us that they're willing to engage with us. And it's not going to be the same for every audience. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's, and it's very interesting to hear about the, the social media component, because I think that's where most people would, would see a, a demonstrative shift as well. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, it, you know, it, this is going to be a period of confusion, but it's uh, hopefully going to come out um, on the the end in sort of the, the trusted, revered kind of way that it was for, you know, the 1930s until at least the, the 80s or 90s or such. I mean, the example immediately after the debates, one of the first kind of tools or metrics that was put, that were that was out or folded into stories was, okay, which candidate was the most searched candidate of that night? Um, you know, Cory Booker seemed to have a, you know, in this second round, this most recent round of debates seemed to have a spike in terms of Google searches. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it could be because people like him and wanted to know about him, or it could have been because he made a huge gap and people wanted to. So we haven't perfected those techniques. We, we know what people are doing. We don't necessarily know what that means. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Um, and so I think a lot of those kinds of diagnostics are still are in the very, very early stages before we can put a lot of stock into them. But the development of those tools is going to be critically important to us kind of getting the story right and continuing to what I think of public opinion research as potentially or uh, prospectively being is, you know, part of the feedback loop where we kind of understand, okay, this is how people are reacting. And so this is an important component of the story. So as we wind up here, I, I would be remiss not to ask you, how do you feel the 2020 race is shaping up at this point? Should we believe what we're seeing of the narrative that, that Joe Biden is leading nationally and in, mo in pretty much all states that I've seen, some with varying degrees of, of lead between four points and 
South Carolina 30 points and things. I mean, are, are what we're seeing in the national and localized landscapes accurate? And, and is, is, do you share those views of, of who's in the lead and trailing and all of that? Yeah, so I think that's a great question in that I don't doubt the accuracy of those polls right now that Biden is very well positioned currently, and that's demonstrated in, you know, all the polling that we see both nationally and at the state level. That does, in my mind, that does not, that's not a, a very important or critical harbinger for where the race is going. It is a measure of his name identification right now. Um, it is uh, recognition of kind of a name and um, a philosophy that people are familiar with, um, a leadership style that people know. Uh, I think it has all the potential in the world to hold steady if none of the other candidates kind of rise to give that a challenge. But I, I don't think that it's uh, a marker for uh, where he is going to necessarily stay in the race. There's just there's so many dynamics out there. I can, I, I think, especially as the field winnows, we've had now two rounds of debates. Um, September will be the third, then there'll be another one in October. I think as people are getting introduced and comfortable um, with these candidates, uh, I, I think these numbers are going to move around a lot, which does not undercut the value of the current polling to say that Biden is he, he, he is, I think, pretty indisputably leading the field right now. But I, I don't, that is a, where he stands or where the field is right now is a great example of where I think the predictive power of polling is, uh, extremely limited because the, the recognition of the other candidates is just not in a place where people are making an informed decision. They are reacting to what they know. And the course of the next, you know, three, four, five months is going to be a huge education campaign for voters about about the other candidates. Very interesting. So someone like Pete Buttigieg, who seems to be falling in the polls from where he was April or so, you know, he was in double digits. Now he seems to be in the five to seven percent. It's not over for him. He could somehow pull things out and become the nominee is that I'm, I'm making a, a somewhat facetious example, but is that, is that a possibility? I, I think so. I really don't give a lot of credence to up or down two or three or four or five points right now. Um, because I just think it's such a fluid race. Uh, if we were a lot closer to, um, the Iowa caucus, um, I would say that, you know, a significant, change of, you know, five or six points um, had some important consequences. But right right now, I, 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 I really don't. I don't see that as a big enough change. I think right now, the most important component of the polling results is not kind of who's ahead or who's trending up or who's trending down. It's that, you know, some candidates aren't going to make the September debate if they don't hit the polling number that they need. Um, and that's going to affect things dramatically. If you're not on the stage during the debate, it's awfully hard to get voters to know you and then you don't have the money to, you know, so it, that relates to a lot of other factors. But I think right now the polling, you know, whether you're at 
4% or at 7% or at 7% or 10% is really meaningless. As long as you're over that threshold to be in the third debate, then, you know, then the stage is yours. And, and that uh, is an opportunity to kind of move those numbers much more significantly. Hmm. That's pretty optimistic then. That's good. I think a lot of people are starting to panic in a lot of these camps, not just Mayor Pete, but, uh, you know, several other places. And, and I think that's, that's well, why. So here's what I would say, though, is that polling can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And that it's hard to raise money when you're uh, on the decline in polling. Not impossible, but hard. And some candidates like, you know, Tom Steyer have the luxury of not needing to worry about um, uh, uh, whether their money is impacted by their polling numbers. But the effects of polling, and I think that's another thing we've got to be very, very careful about, is that we don't want it to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, that candidate's down two points. Their money, you know, this money spigot gets turned off for them. And then it does become kind of, a, you know, a harbinger of what is going to happen. Because if you're, you know, down a point or two and you can easily, you know, bounce back from that, but not if you don't have the money or not if you're losing staff or not attracting organizers, you know, volunteer organizers on the field uh, or in the field as a result of that news. So that news in and of itself, I don't think the, the, the three or four points change that much, but it can change other perceptions that then do impact your campaign. Absolutely. Well, We'll be seeing how the 2020 election goes and how the industry advances in general. And Molly O'Rourke, I really thank you today for joining me on The Nexus. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to uh, seeing how this all plays out. Absolutely. And we will be right back. So as Molly O'Rourke said, polling at the stage of the presidential race is a complex affair you don't want to put too much stock in polls being the absolute determinant of how well a candidate is doing or is going to do, but you do have to pay attention to them somewhat, or you won't make the debates. Kamala Harris appears to be fading in polling after her lackluster performance in the second debate, but as Molly mentioned, we shouldn't be thinking this is a death knell for the campaign by any means. But... What if someone like Harris or Mayor Pete declines so much that they fall beneath the 2% threshold to make the September and October debates? Then polling would be the most vital thing in the world for them. This complexity is what makes survey research fascinating to me. Like it or not, here are a few realities of the polling world we are all experiencing. Number one, polls shape perception just as much as perception shapes polls. More people than you might think look to polls to help form their opinion because they like to be joiners and to keep up with what they think the in opinion is. This cycle manifests itself over and over again. If a poll is telling you that people don't like Obamacare, for example, but you haven't really thought much about it since you have your own private insurance, there's a good chance that you might not like it too. Why? because you believe that the poll is scientific and therefore must be official. Number two, online polls are very much widespread, and this media is interspersing them along with so-called real polls. As Molly and I discussed, it's unclear whether an internet-only poll is actually legitimate. The industry standard has been a combination of landlines and cell phones, 
Yet online polling, fraught with all sorts of possibilities for fraud, is being used right alongside telephone polls. I read a USA Today poll this week about the reasons for why the mass shootings happened in El Paso and Dayton. I checked the methodology and it was completely done online. I still shared it on social media and didn't put any qualifiers in. Was that poll accurate? Who knows? Number three, while the state of the polling industry isn't as bad as some naysayers believe it to be, there are still a lot of so-called push polls out there and expect those to multiply once we get into the primary and general election season next year. These are the telephone calls where someone, usually an automated voice, asks leading questions along the lines of, are you against the rule of law by favoring decriminalizing the southern border? Or do the racist sentiments of President Donald Trump make you more or less likely to vote for him? See how loaded those are? This is what a lot of polling amounts to nowadays. Can those be regulated? The sad answer is not really. In any case, polls today probably aren't as accurate as they were even 10 years ago. But as Molly discussed, pollsters are working hard to bring some order to the chaos. Survey research is important, but we may never lose the skepticism we gained in 2016. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Thank you for joining me. And if you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Thank you.